Travellers and welcome to podcast 108 in our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. After restoration, the entire porter goes under the stage. (laughs) Well, that is comedy gold, Simon, and uh, something I think that our favourite surrealist exponent of travelling light, Marcel Duchamp, would have approved of. Now, you told us last week that this was a guided tour you went on via Google Translate. But uh, could you translate that translation? Was there really a porter under the stairs? No, Mick. I was in the auditorium of a cultural centre in the town of Silame, which is on the Estonian coast as part of my great exploration of the Baltic Republics, of which more later. And you can hear more from the tour. But let's begin in our time-honoured fashion with feedback and contributions from lovely listeners. Yes, and we're going to do the decent thing and include more of your contributions to the debate about the value of holidays, which we uh, attempted to cover in last week's uh, podcast. Does money spent equal enjoyment gained? Uh, Which is MS equals EG? Question mark. A 21st century Einstein, Mick, you surely are. Thank you. Praise indeed. Kate Scrivener's tweet struck a particular chord with me. She said her most treasured holiday was a family chalet trip to Selsey. Most expensive, taking family to Japan, was awesome and an introduction to travelling for my kids. Now, actually, the only family holiday uh, which I went on with my uh, parents and my brothers and sisters was, in fact, to Selsey, um, Selsey Bill in West Sussex. And we we stayed in a cottage which I think was thatched uh, and it rained all the time. I mean, we we were there for a week. And I do remember that you could only get to the toilet by going through my parents' bedroom. Um, and those, <laughs> which, and whether this experience has marked me forever, I don't know. Well, uh, Celsius Bill, strongly to be recommended. You can actually, and um, particularly if you're flying into Gatwick, I find it quite often pops up out of the window, a very distinctive shape on the uh, on the the, the uh, south coast. Meanwhile, Steve Fleming says the most expensive trip he had was three weeks in Chile after we retired. His best, though, was two months in Norway in a camper van for a third of the price. Now, Steve, I don't know when you made that trip, but uh, I would have thought two months in Norway, you would probably, well, certainly sell one (laughs) kidney, possibly the house as well to pay for that. But I'm delighted. I can only imagine that we're going back some years. Anyway, Anna O'Connor had four months travelling around the globe. She mentions the Galapagos as nature at its best, being held at gunpoint by Maoists, carried across a glacial stream in the Himalayas on a 90-year-old's back as my feet couldn't take the cold. She was, by the way, 32. And then, oh dear, escorting a dead body in our small boat in Brazil. That does sound like a proper... Uh, holiday experience well a kind of lifetime really of travel experiences don't you reckon I I do and I think if you are going to be investing time as well as money the uh, great globe trotting um, trip of four months or a year even is still a very valuable thing to do 
I was struck by the divisions over the Maldives, so Salvatore Grana says, My most treasured holiday was trekking in Cambodia in 2016, but my most expensive trip was to the Maldives in 2006. And Daisy said, Yes, our honeymoon was absolutely epic. Once in a lifetime last year to the Maldives. We'll never spend that money again. Won't ever be able to spend that money again. But it was utter perfection. Well... I don't think you've ever been to the Maldives. Uh, I have. No, I, no I, I haven't. No, I've never, to be honest, particularly wanted to go. Although I suppose if I wanted to have a um, a perfect honeymoon, I mean, maybe it's the sort of place to go. Well, it's obviously marvellous that, that uh, Daisy had a lovely time and many other people report it. But as a straightforward destination, if you are simply wishing to see a great part of the world, well, Yes, you've got all these lovely palm fringe islands with uh, surrounded by coral atolls and they look lovely and they've got nice villas where you can enjoy each other's fabulousness if you're on your holiday and enjoy some um, on your honeymoon and enjoy some uh, subaqua or some snorkeling if you are not on your honeymoon. But the thing is, just a couple of hours away in Sri Lanka, you've got all of that plus an incredible hinterland of culture, of cuisine, of scenery, um, and why you would go to the Maldives, which strikes me as pretty one-dimensional, I just do not know. <laughs> Maybe you're missing a romantic gene somewhere, <laughs> Simon. But um, at the other end of the spectrum, Rebecca Holpern. I've had many cheap but memorable trips. One involved camping on the beach in Keramoti, from where you can get a ferry to Thassos. Great, apart from the mosquitoes. Yes, Thassos strongly to be recommended. I really don't understand, Rebecca, why you didn't just get the boat across. Thassos uh, is a very large Greek island, very different. It's It's got a huge mountain in the middle. It's got palm for, uh, pine forests, as well as all the usual kind of tavernas on the beach and some superb beaches. Very popular, in fact, with people from um, uh, the Balkan states uh, on their holidays. And also in the eastern Mediterranean, Sue Hares says, our most expensive trip, oh dear, listen to this, Mick, was to Cyprus for my 60th birthday. This also turned out to be the worst trip ever. Yeah. We were separated as they took my husband to stay at the government COVID hotel 90 minutes away. I was alone and depressed instead of relaxed on our dream holiday. Well, this, of course, is uh, a whole new and generally uh, unwelcome dimension which has been added to travel and holiday experiences by uh, by COVID, and I suppose lots of people have had uh, uh, dream holidays seriously disrupted um, by this. Um, I just uh, decided that I wasn't going to stray outside the uh, UK until it was kind of over, or uh, I'd caught it and had as many vaccinations as possible, which is now the case. Um, so um, I'm looking forward to uh, doing that kind of thing. But very sorry to hear about Sue's experience and, and of course, Rebecca's mosquitoes. And I think that uh, equation that you uh, came up with um, needs to be tweaked to include time and COVID and mosquitoes. How about this? Uh, T times C times M equals um, tango uniform. <laughs> 
Now, onwards and upwards to the sunlit uplands of travel, and unlike our political masters, we try to be transparent here on You Should Have Been There. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the connection between travel and drugs, and Linda WS was not impressed with our efforts. Yes, Linda sent three interlinked tweets, and um, the first one was, well, I had trouble listening to this. It's cannabis. Stop using the derogatory word marijuana for starters. The hushed tones and borderline puritanical comments are infuriating. The worst drug on offer is alcohol. It was used by European colonists to seduce First Nations peoples. Well, I didn't know, Mick, that marijuana was a derogatory term. Certainly, I've always used the words interchangeably. I suppose I think that cannabis refers to the plant and that uh, marijuana is the leafy stuff and the flowers. Do you think that we used hushed tones and borderline puritanical comments? I certainly didn't mean to. I mean, I, I do recall, possibly not very well, trying to satirise the way that um, politicians in particular describe their um, uh, experimenting with drugs when they're at university by saying, um, uh, yes, we did experiment, but I didn't <laughs> inhale. Linda is, of course, absolutely right about the harm caused by alcohol, and we will be looking at drinking and travelling in a future podcast. Linda also writes that um, natural intoxicants have been ridiculed, demonised, resulting in so much misery. All drugs should be legal. People enjoy picking um, psilocybin mushrooms on Vancouver Island. We have gorgeous weed shops there. So I presume that Linda is uh, contacting us from Canada, which is indeed one of the countries where um, uh, recreational use of, I have to be careful here, cannabis is is, uh, legal uh, alongside uh, Uruguay, Portugal, Mexico, and I believe Malta as well. Uh, but let's get on to the uh, the main topic of today's podcast, which is your visit to the Baltic states, which are, I think we'd all agree, in a very um, politically sensitive or geopolitically sensitive place at the moment. <laughs> That was the sound of people protesting outside the Russian embassy in the beautiful old town of the Estonian capital, Tallinn. It's a remarkable sight because the embassies, unlike in most parts of the world where they're kind of spread out in lovely leafy parts of the capital, they are all concentrated in the old town. And so the Russian diplomats have no choice but to listen to this relentless protests against the invasion of Ukraine and the atrocities committed there. But it is also a country where you are absolutely on the front line of Russia. And a a couple of days earlier, I'd actually travelled to the eastern city of uh, Narva, where you are just 200 metres or so away from Russia, looking out across uh, the beautiful river at the city of Ivanogorod, and no way would you be travelling there at the moment. Um, it, it was a culmination of a superb, um, very wintry trip through the 
Baltic republics. And just to remind people um, where they are and what they are, uh, you have Estonia in the north, Latvia beneath it, and then Lithuania um, sort of stacked on top of each other in the eastern corner of the Baltic Sea. And I'd just like to know uh, how different they are. I mean, are they very different? Or is it like three, well, Waleses, I suppose we have to say, because they must be somewhere around the size of Wales, um, stacked on top of one another, as you say. Or do you get the feel of a whole new identity as you move from one to the other? They are more similar than they are distinct. And actually, they're they're roughly the size of the Republic of Ireland. So uh, a couple of Waleses each, at least. So Estonia is the most exotic of them, very kind of Finnish, there's some strong Russian influences as well. Um, it's in the middle, you've got Latvia, which is, I suppose, the most Germanic, particularly in the capital Riga, and then Lithuania, which is most closely related to its neighbour, Poland. So they, they, they share a pretty common landscape, which is just flat, uh, uh, forests and and, and uh, uh, pasture and a beautiful Baltic coastline as well. So they're not there if you want to go mountaineering. Um, they are though uh, very serene, beautiful locations in a lovely corner of Europe. I read somewhere that they have the lowest high points of uh, of any states, I think, in the world. I, th- I think the Maldives might give them a run for their money. But, <laughs> oh, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, it's, it's uh, uh, probably about the highest point is the uh, lovely old town in um, Tallinn where you do actually have to uh, do a little bit of hiking to get to the top. The, the cultures, the languages are all very distinctive, though. Estonian is closely linked to Finnish and also slightly to Hungarian. Uh, Latvian is a Slavic language, but with quite a lot of German there. And then Lithuanian is is close to Polish. So again, they've got sort of different roots, but they also share the unfortunate position of having been annexed by the Soviet Union. And they spent... Uh, about four decades as part of the USSR, they were pretty useless members, frankly, because they were all a bit too free and independent. And indeed, Estonia uh, was known as the Soviet West for a while, because effectively it it had an awful lot of stuff, partly because you got the influence from Finland and so on, uh, that you couldn't get anywhere else in the USSR. And I remember going around the Soviet Union and the advice to anybody who was a Westerner who was perhaps turning up where they shouldn't be um, was just to explain that they were Estonian, at which point the uh, military, the security people would say, all right, well, uh, stop doing whatever you're doing and go away. (laughs) Right. Are the capital cities very distinct from one another or do they all have sort of pretty medieval quarters and um, interesting churches and I mean i.e if you were dropped in either Vilnius um, or Tallinn or Riga would you know which one it was if you see what I mean if you were blindfolded dropped in the central square uh, and then had your blindfold taken off would you be able to tell which Baltic state you were in? 
I claim I would. Um, yes. Now, they do all have lovely old towns with beautiful medieval buildings and lovely churches, sometimes slightly reconstructed. And so if you were right in the middle of, of one of the old towns, you might think for a moment, hang on, where am I? But uh, Tallinn is by far the most beautiful because it has got this wonderful kind of hill that that rises above everything. And it's got the most stunning Russian Orthodox cathedral at the top, which is probably the most notable building there. Riga is quite a lot more industrialized and it's also got kind of closer. The, the, the Soviet Union is more, more visible in the immediate surroundings of the old town. Uh, Vilnius feels a bit kind of more middle European. It's uh, quite a, a lot further south and you've got boulevard life there so i think i could probably tell uh where i was immediately and of course um just as it would be going through another region of europe perhaps um uh, austria czech republic slovakia that there are always uh similarities but i think there are also pleasing divergences too and uh what about uh, uh having fun i mean what were your highlights you eat and you drink extraordinarily well for almost no money. Uh, yes, the food is really quite hearty. Yes, if you were a vegetarian, you might um, not have the time of your life. So, when you say hearty, so when you say hearty, what 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 kind of things? Well, the, the, this this is a part of the world where the climate means that um, you know the 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 um, the dumpling, the oh, pork yes. knuckle is. Uh, quite, quite features quite frequently on the menu because basically you need to fill fill your belly to cope with the uh, the winter and goodness. The temperature on April's Fool's Day in Tallinn was well below zero. So yes, hearty food, but beautifully served. Um, so, some lovely little touches. So, for example, when you go to Tartu, the uh, soon-to-be European capital of culture and the main kind of cultural hub for Estonia, you go into the most lovely uh, Viennese, Parisian maybe, uh, cafe going and you're thinking this is just gorgeous and you have a, 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 a coffee which tastes heavenly and costs nothing and then you want a bit of soup for your lunch and, and suddenly you're directed to a kind of self-service almost school canteen place where you do get some lovely soup so everything's just a little bit odd but in a really <laughs> good way and the other thing is the people or the main thing perhaps is the people i as usual mick i wasn't well organized i thought uh back end of uh, March, early April, no problem at all getting anywhere to stay. I turned up in on the first night in Sholai, which is a beautiful city in northern Lithuania, and there was nowhere to stay because it was full of American troops who were just there to kind of keep um, keep, keep keep an eye on what was happening um, uh, across the Russian border. Uh, but uh, so um, by the time I got to the second hotel where they said, no, there isn't a room to be found in town, I was feeling a bit gloomy. But immediately the staff start ringing around. They find somebody who's got an apartment. They, even though it's half past nine, they call her up and they say, you've got to, you've got to help out here. And everything was sorted out marvellously. Um, the buses are generally good, but they get a bit slow, sparse near the border. So I did quite a lot of hitchhiking. Um, and my friend 
Andre, a lorry driver who lives in Lithuania but spends most of his life driving between Hamburg and the UK, um, he thought I'd been standing around too long, drove into a petrol station and bought me an Irish coffee um, at 11 o'clock in the morning, which was a, a little unusual. And everywhere there is... And the, the, one of the people who was helping out just said, yeah, we want to make a good impression. And it's as, as simple and, and as innocent as that. Well, wh- why do people go there generally? I mean, what what sort of tourism is there other than um, American um, troops keeping an eye out on um, uh, keeping an eye out on what's going well, on across the border? And indeed, your good self. Uh, who who else goes there? Is it a are they, are they uh, stag? Uh, do destinations well that's a really good point um and riga certainly used to be um since covid started i guess thankfully the idea of going to somewhere that you've never heard of in some eastern european country you can't pronounce um has kind of waned a little among the um the, the stag and hen party fraternities and actually i talked to the uh, uh, the, the ambassador uh in in Latvia, uh, Paul Brummel, Her Majesty's ambassador, because he he is uniquely, I think, um, uh, an ambassador who, while he is in the country and he's already been in Turkmenistan, he's been in uh, Kazakhstan, writes a guidebook about the places to which he is am- ambassadoring. It's it's a wonderful thing because they are very very um complementary skills you've got to get out and see the place understand how it works you can write a guidebook and you can also represent her majesty anyway he said that that's all dried up which is a, a good thing um this summer more people are going to be going to the baltics than ever before and i'll tell you why that is it's because typically your baltic cruise Went up, stopped in somewhere in Denmark, Stockholm, Helsinki, probably called in at Tallinn, but mostly was making for St. Petersburg. That won't be happening this summer. So they've had to redraw their itineraries. So lots of people will be going, I think, to to Latvia and to Lithuania who weren't really expecting to be there. And other than that, well, there's a lot of um, uh, very significant uh, populations from each of those countries in the UK. And so there's lots of people shuttling back and forth. And there's also some romances going on. But if you just want to be a holidaymaker and go somewhere really different and unusual, but manageable, then the Baltics are absolutely the place to be right now. I wonder if cycling um, through the Baltic countries uh, would be possible. I mean, it, if it's as flat as, as you say, that's uh, certainly a good starting point. It would be very possible. And... I think very satisfying as long as you got the wind direction right, because you genuinely do not wish to be, I don't know, uh, trying to cycle from um, Riga to Tallinn in the face of a cruel north wind. You would, um, I think, probably lose the will to pedal by the time you reach the Estonian border. (laughs) Yeah, good point. Now, I've been waiting to hear a bit more about your surreal guided tour. Well, oh, it was the highlight of this trip. Let me place it for you. I was in a town called Silame. It's on the Baltic coast and it was very heavily developed by the Soviet Union as the place where they would extract uranium from shale. 
And this was a massive industrial process that was also very, very high tech. And they built a kind of town to house all the experts who came in, all the specialist workers. And it reminds me a little bit, actually, of Pripyat, which is the town they built for the Chernobyl uh, reactor, of course, um, which we covered uh, uh, last year. It is, though, on the sea. It's a beautiful location and it has some wonderful creations of uh, kind of late 20th century Soviet architecture, including the Palace of Culture, which, of course, was the heart of this uh, community. Now, in the Palace of Culture, apart from having movable furniture in the auditorium, they have so much more. There's an underground bunker because, of course, every building then had to have a bunker in case of an attack. That's full of various museum pieces. You are almost told by Valentina, the wonderful guide, to sit at the desk, put on the military hat and pretend that you are making a phone call to Moscow, uh, which was a particular (laughs) treat. But then things turned really weird because Valentina, I think, having not seen any tourists for a a fair old while, was absolutely determined to provide the best possible guided tour she could. She spoke no English. I spoke very little uh, Russian. Russian is very much the language there, not Estonian. And so we just enjoyed this tour, uh, thanks to the wonders of Google Translate, which I think, um, well... uh, You could say things were lost in translation. I think a vast amount was gained. Jazz will decorate the hall on Saturday. Прекрасно. Обратите внимание на шикарную хрустальную люстру. Pay attention to the chic crystal chandelier. Эту люстру привез первый директор завода с Москвы. У нее 103 лампочки. She has 103 light bulbs. Каждый год для того, чтобы заменить лампочки, люстру опускают вниз. Every year to replace the light bulbs, the chandelier is lowered down. Специальное механическое устройство находится на чердаке. Okay, it reads a special mechanical device is located in the attic. We all need one of those. A special mechanical device is located in the attic. <laughs> well, you do get an idea of, of, of what is going on. And I agree with you, actually, that um, more was gained uh, in translation than lost. I mean, I love the idea of jazz <laughs> decorating the hall. And um, and and that talk of the chandelier. She has 103 yes. light bulbs. For some reason, that made me laugh quite a lot. Uh, yes, and I I think this is the way forward, Mick. I will uh, try now to travel the globe and encourage guides wherever they may be to use this and uh, generate a kind of random experience that is utterly priceless. <laughs> yes. 
We could add this to our You Should Have Been There uh, spin-offs. This one could be gained in translation. I think that will work very well indeed. And of course, we always want to hear from our lovely listeners about their translational experiences. And yes, we are in the market for menu items that are hilariously mistranslated. But also, if you've had a particularly good or indeed exciting um, or, or, or just hilarious experience with a guide in various parts of the world. We would love to know that. You can tweet us at you should have BT, or you can leave an audio message at anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there. And in next week's podcast, we're going to be discussing journeys with a mission. The more unusual, the better. For example, I've got a very uh, lavishly illustrated uh, brochure here called La Route des Pigeonniers du Tarn, which <laughs> is the uh, the route of the, I suppose we call them pigeon lofts or dovecots um, of the Tarn region in France. And uh, very interesting it looks as well. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so tell us your favourite uh, journey with a mission. Um, the, the more unusual, offbeat and uh, specialist, the better. You can tweet us at you should have BT or, of course, leave an audio message at anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there. But for now, from me, Simon Calder and me, Mick Webb, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.